Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with y'all. Well, we're doing things a little differently today. So if you've been around OB Joyful for very long, we have our own liturgy, and it's basically the same thing every Sunday. That keeps us like we know what's going to happen. This Sunday, a little different. We're in uh, this month where we're focusing on worship as a spiritual practice. And so because of that, we're going to take the, the back part of this service and just spend a little bit more focused time in worship and, and wrap up that way. So when I finish the message, we'll have some prayer time, and then we'll go directly into uh, a, a little bit longer, a couple songs longer, uh, worship set. So looking forward to doing that with you guys today. Um, I'm super excited. To, I've heard some of the music they're going to do. It's going to be really, really good to be together in that. Let's see, a couple other announcements. Uh, women's Bible study, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, Wednesday morning, Thursday evening. You can find out about the details on the website. And then one other thing around worship this week. Friday night here, 5.30, we're going to do a worship evening. So we'd love to invite you to be here. Um, it would be really casual, um, really simple, but we'll just be spending some time in prayer and singing and connecting with the Lord through Scripture. So I want to invite you to be a part of that uh, with us. So if you can, 5.30, I I'm not exactly sure how long that's going to be. I mean, it'll probably be less than four or five hours, so no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm sure we'll do it uh, as, as well as we can in, in a decent amount of time. It gives you time to get home for dinner, so um, let's see. We had a tree in the foyer over the Christmas time period, and we had these little wooden ornaments, and a lot of people wrote prayers on those and different statements and praises and things. This week, the staff took all that down. And uh, we prayed over the things on there. I wanted to share just a couple of them with you uh, here. Let's see. Here, this is pretty cute. This is obviously a little person. Uh, to heal Papa forever. That's sweet. Um, let's see. Uh, for Rivers, one of my BFFs who moved, I hope he is okay. Uh, for my son, to know you, Lord as Lord and Savior, Jesus. Um, for our house to get dried in. That's a common one here. I pray for everyone who is struggling but hides it because they are afraid of someone knowing. <laughs> I'm grateful for my family. They keep me company. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cute. All right, well, we're in our series in Acts. We're doing the second half of Acts. We did the first half in the fall, broke out to do uh, some things around Christmas and all, but now we're back in for a few weeks, uh, and just am excited to share with you just another little bit of uh, the thread of the story of the church growing and moving out from Jerusalem. And... Uh, so a lot of times, I don't know why I ask myself this. I'm like, if I had just one book of the New Testament, which one would it be? And I don't know if it would be Acts, but I sure do love reading in Acts. It gets me excited about what God has done and what he is doing. So as we're digging into this today and in any of these weeks, whether you're a believer or not, it's, it's not so important. It's just that we see what God was doing, and then we learn from that today. It is, for the church as a whole, like this church for the bigger, the greater church, for you as an individual believer to walk in the footsteps of these people who went before us. 
as an example. And it's, it's just exciting to see. It's always, a it's always challenging to me because I definitely feel like I'm, I'm on the couch compared to these people. So I'm just always motivated. Um, today, you, you guys read with Lisa just a moment ago, this little bit of a different uh, aspect of the growth of the church. Let me just give you sort of the, the highlights of that. Um, so compared to last week, if you were here last week, Peter is about 30 miles away from Jerusalem, and he goes just another 30 miles north. He's called to speak to this guy named Cornelius, and Cornelius is a guy who's a, uh, um, not a, a Christian. He's, he's, not, he's not a Jew, but he knows about the, the God of the Jews. He knows the God of the universe. He knows about him. He, he prays to him, but he, is not, he hasn't moved into that faith yet. But God creates this situation where Peter speaks to him, and he, he and his family become believers. And that, that's sort of how the story rolls out. Well, this is a little bit different. This is the town of Antioch, which was a major city. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, so really far. And when you think about that in, in our day, that, you know, it's like, well, I just get in my car, and it's not that, not that far away. But then it was totally different to go 300 miles away. So this is way up at the top. Uh, of, of uh, uh, where the Mediterranean ends up in there. And uh, the church is alive in that place. It's mostly people who are Jewish who have become Christians, okay? So a lot like what's been happening everywhere. But the difference here is that, as you read a little bit earlier, these people from the island of Cyprus, so you guys all know your geography, but Cyprus is just off the coast, basically, of, of Israel in, in the Mediterranean, People from there who become believers had gone up to Cyprus. I probably should do it this way because that's in my head. But Cyprus over here, and they go up to um, Antioch, and they're telling people about Jesus. Well, there's, another, there's other people, not just those people, but they're from North Africa, like way over in Libya. And they have joined the people from Cyprus to go all the way up to um, Antioch. But the people that they're talking to are folks who don't know anything about Yahweh, about the God of the universe at all. They're a part of that pagan community, the, the Greek community that had multiple gods. So there's no Jewish heritage. It's kind of important to understand that. It's a little bit of a different uh, step in the process of the gospel going out. All right? And again, this is 15 to 20 years after Christ has been uh, resurrected and ascended. So uh, the thing that you notice at the very end of what Lisa read was it said, and then this is the place where they were called Christians for the first time, which I think is really cool. It just sets this sort of marker there and says, this is the place. That sign goes up. That name is bestowed upon or adopted by the people of the church. And it basically means that they're of the household of Christ. They're now in the household, part of the family of Christ. That's what they were saying when they said that. So here... Uh, here is the thing um, that I want to circle around to kind of and, and stay focused on. Um, when those people from Cyprus and Cyrene over in Libya went to Antioch, they were bringing this message. They were saying, there is a Lord, there is a God over everything, and he needs to be your Lord, and here's the story, and here's why. And they converted, they believed when, he, when they said that to them, when they filled them in on this information about Jesus. 
And so I want to ask you a question. If you call yourself a Christian, is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord if you call yourself a Christian? If you're not a believer, then just evaluate this because Jesus is saying, I am the Lord. I am above all other things. I am the king. This is the information. So take this information. If you are a believer, is Jesus your Lord? Or something else? Is someone else? So that's the question. Uh, Here's where we're going to go. These, this church had one Lord, as I just said. They had, they, were, they had one mission, one mission, and they had one name. One Lord, one mission, one name. So let's talk about this one Lord thing for just a minute. Five times in the passage it says that there is one Lord. Lord, Lord, Lord. Uh, Luke wants us to see this. He wants us to hear this. It's almost like if we were sitting at the table with him, he'd be saying that word a little bit louder and looking at us knowingly. Lord, Lord, Lord. There is a Lord, but why was he doing that? Well, one reason was because we want to be sure we understand that these people who were converting to follow Jesus would have, would have struggled with the idea of one Lord for them. And we'll, we'll talk that, about that in just a moment. They didn't have the background of understanding the God of Abraham. They didn't understand the Jewish history that the other believers in that church had grown up with, right? And that's something, if you are a believer today, most of you have some little bit of an understanding of where we come from with that uh, Jewish history, with the idea of one God rather than multiple gods that we're selecting between. And this is where that culture and ours kind of come together in a, in a really interesting way. So those people were probably what we would call pluralists. Okay, so they understood they were they were religious people, but they understood that there were they believed that there were a lot of different gods. Right? These are Greeks. In the scripture that we just read, the word they use is Hellenists, and, and what that means, literally translated, is that they were Greeks. They were pagans, and so. As a pluralist, you know or assume that there are different gods. It doesn't mean that you follow all of them. But they might have, we might say it this way, they might have stacked them up or or, or ranked them in terms of priorities. So in these towns, a lot of times they'd have a, a temple to even Caesar. Well, these are smart people. And when they built it, when the Caesar started calling themselves gods, there were people there who said, I'm not so sure. Right? They were capable of being skeptical. Sometimes we think of them as really like simpletons or something, and that is certainly not the case. They were religious people who took, who said, all right, there's Apollos, or in this case, there's, they would say Zeus, or they would just go down the list of all the temples that were in their town, and some of the towns were more focused than others on a certain god, and they would stack rank those, but they wouldn't blend them together, Okay? So when these people from the islands and from uh, Libya came across, modern-day Libya came across and said, hey, there's one Lord. They were making a significant claim that these people needed to hear. There is one Lord. All of this other stuff, no. One Lord. So when we come to this, we need to understand what the Scripture is saying 
is that there is one Lord, Jesus. One Lord. <clears throat> Today, we have two things working. We don't really have that same kind of pluralism. We have a thing that's more uh, like syncretism. So what we do is we blend together different aspects of different faiths that we like. And let me tell you, this is classic Crested Butte. <laughs> and um, I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. We're here in this town, all of you probably, and you, you, I think I saw something, what did I see? Maybe it was in the bus or something, you know. We're here because, it was a, it was a realtor or something. We're here because we love this, we fell in love with this place too, right? All of us at some point fell in love with Crested Butte. And some of the things about Crested Butte, if you take time to look at it, it's, all, it, it's beautiful, but it's all about the people. And our people, all of us, are religious people. We all believe there's something greater. There's something higher. And I know I've said this a lot of times, but it's something as we're going out into the community, like the early church went out into the community, we need to understand that we're usually sitting by someone who believes there's something more. But they're not layering these different things and saying, well, there's this God, and there's this God, and there's this God, and maybe we believe in one or the other. They're syncretizing a faith. So they'll do some yoga, but they'll be real serious about it, and they'll bring in some pagan stuff in the fall, right? <laughs> and not they, we. We all do. I'm, I am not excluded from this stuff at all. Um, we bring in that. We, uh, uh, we, we, uh, we'll, we'll put some prayer flags out. You know, there's like a cute prayer flag string under the door. Um, many of these things are good things from a simple perspective. They represent good things. They don't necessarily represent evil. But what they are doing, what we are doing is we are combining and creating something that we think is a tasty cake of, of a religion. Well, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm religious and, and I believe in God, but I don't really like the church and I don't like all the things that it has, so I also bring these things in. So we syncretize them. But it's not a cake. It's like a Frankenstein on a table that never gets resuscitated. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. We can't, we can't pick our own truth. Uh, I, there was a young adult that said uh, recently to me that they'd had a conversation with someone at school down at Western, and um, they, were trying to, they were talking about God and, and religious topics like that. And the, the person said, well, there are no absolutes. Um, you can't say that. Because <laughs> if you say categorically there are no absolutes, you have just stated an absolute. <laughs> so without God, without Yahweh, without an absolute, the world is in a bind. We cannot categorically de deny and set aside God. So we have syncretism that tries to blend atheism and religion and all these different things together, creating what I'm saying is more of a, a gross Frankenstein. But Frankenstein's monster. Um, 
we also have secularism. And this is the place that we all exist, Christians or not. We are postmodern and post-Christian in general. That's how we see the world. Even if you call yourself a Christian, it's very difficult to have a Christian world view. But a purely secular person would say, I don't want to recognize, or I don't recognize, or I categorically deny any transcendent truth. There is nothing greater than what I can see. But here's the thing about this. It's like, it's like the absolutism statement that we heard. I'm a secularist. There is nothing transcendent. There is no morality that comes from somewhere else above and bigger than us. All we have is us from an evolutionary perspective. But I still want the good things of the gospel. I still want to help poor people. If you purely evolved from nothing, from, from simple compounds with energy applied and heat, then there is no morality. There is no place for morality to come from. So to grasp onto that, all you have is power. <clears throat> Secularism today is to want, to want the good things that Jesus brings to us, but to try to get them a different way. And we've said this this way, it's the kingdom without the king. So it's still a desire for the good things of the gospel. When we're so here's why I'm saying all this. These people who were from out of town came into town in Antioch and spoke to these people who had this idea about re religion, had an idea about gods, and they brought it to the lordship of Jesus Christ and said, Jesus is over all things, he is your king, and they explained it to them, and they converted and followed Jesus. None of us being from Crested Butte, except for the youngest of us, just a few of us in this room, are coming into this place we're gathering and mixing with people who are not just pluralists, but syncretists and secularists, all wanting something better. We're here because we want something better. We see something better. It seems better than the concrete jungles that we come from. We want something better. We want to bring goodness. We want to experience the goodness. The good news is that if you're a Christian, you can speak into and be a part of that. That's good news. That's, to me, that's really exciting. We can have those conversations. Start them on the bus. Start them on the lift. Start them with our, with our waiter, waitress, wherever we are. Um, I had a friend who was telling me about uh, teaching some elementary school students. Recently in the classroom, uh, there was a, a gathering of several of the classes together, so it was a bunch of, of elementary students. And the topic was the religious holidays that were you know, around the end of the year. So you, you know what all of those are. So they're just kind of walking through them, and when they got, in no particular order, when they got to Christmas, the, the kids didn't know why Jesus had anything to do with Christmas. Which, you know, if you're from the South like me, you're like, say what? <laughs> you know, from a lot of the other parts of the country, that's not so un uncommon. They didn't know what a cross was or what the cross meant or anything like that. Um, so, uh, future generations where parents are more hands-off in terms of teaching about uh, 
religion, even in general, uh, has some big implications. One is that a lot of kids are going to be kind of a blank slate in terms of faith. Then it would have negative associations, which a lot of us carry in here. Um, but it's an opportunity for the church, for believers to take the gospel out into the next generation, for people to hear it just like the Hellenists, just like the Greeks heard it. We're like, I thought there was something. I thought something was going on. It's also a reminder that Christian parents need to teach their kids. And that's why this church is so committed to bringing the gospel and the truth of the word to the children in this town. Um, so, there is an aversion that we have to having a Lord of our life. So we make multiple gods, we do different things, we try to solve that problem, we try to have the kingdom without the king. But then the question still I return to with you is, is there a Lord of your life? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Especially believers. Um, I personally want to be like those guys and gals from Cyrene and from Cyprus who are up there in Antioch telling them about one Lord. I mean, it's kind of an interesting strategy for getting the gospel out. And when we're saying, yeah, what all kinds of, having a conversation, tell me about your religious background. Tell me about what you see in religion and religiosity in Crested Butte. And they'll tell you, I see this and I see that, I experience this. Tell me about your own. You know, so you're getting this, you're seeing the syncretism that's going to go on. And then suggesting, what if there was just one Lord? That's what was happening here. One Lord. So in the passage, you saw Barnabas goes up and he is sent to see what's going on in Antioch. And he's really excited when he gets there and he starts teaching the people. He's teaching them the word. He's teaching them more about Jesus, more about the history of one God. And I'm pretty sure when he saw these people, the, a passage like this, and there are many like this, but I want to read you this one. This is from Isaiah 12 too. This must have come to mind. Behold, God, the one God, is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord, the one Lord, the Lord over all God, is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. That was what those people were experiencing. Salvation in Christ, lordship of Christ in our lives, means strength and song and security. That's a beautiful thing. Okay, so one Lord, one mission. I, I might change this a little bit. Instead of saying one mission, I might better say that they were on mission. They knew what they were doing. They were, they were motivated and encouraged about um, getting engaged in their community, their friends knowing where they stood. Their family knew. Their communities knew where they stood. They were on mission with Jesus. A simple question that I have to ask myself all the time is, can people tell that I'm a believer not because I handed in my card that said, pastor at Obi-Joyful Church. They were on mission with Christ together with other believers. Can you say that? Can you say that you are on mission for Christ? Um, there are a couple of distinctives of this church that was on mission, that had one mission. One is that outreach to them was critical. That sort of uh, flame of those people coming over, the fire that they started 
that, that um, drew people to know Jesus, that, that traveling to do that kind of exploded there. Um, it was a diverse place, and a lot of neat things were happening from that diversity as they went out into the neighboring towns and beyond. So if you skip down one chapter to Acts 13, just the first few verses, listen to this. So now there were in the church at Antioch, this is just a couple of years later, uh, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It's a pretty neat example of what a church might look like, right? There's all kinds of things going on in there. The Holy Spirit was welcomed. They were not surprised by spiritual things happening. And in our Western culture, we tend to be a little bit surprised or caught off guard by spiritual things happening. They had prophets and teachers. Um, they were, uh, Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. They were pre- uh, engaged in spiritual practices like we will be today, worship. They were involved in fasting, praying, in evangelism, and going out. They were spiritually engaged. They were on mission together. And here, here's something that's cool. I just got to take a sidestep and, and show you the diversity that was there. It's really important to see. Not only were all these different gifts being used by the Holy Spirit in that place, but it says... They had um, prophets and teachers. They had Barnabas. He's a teacher. He's an encourager. That was, that was what he was known for. In fact, I might be wrong, and you guys can correct me later if I am, but I think his name might have something to do with an encourager, so he lived up to his name. Simeon, who was called Niger, so he was from Central Africa. This means that he was a, a black person, okay? Lucius of Cyrene. So Cyrene's that place over northern Libya, Okay, so he has come together. So right now we have Barnabas. Barnabas is probably from Cyprus, that island, right? Then you have Simeon from Central Africa. You have Lucius of Cyrene from Northern Africa. You have Menaean. Listen to this, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. You never want to say that you're a friend of Herod, okay? So how are these people coming together? And then you bring in Saul. Ironically, Saul is the guy who's caused the whole thing. At the beginning of the passage we read, it says the, the Christians were scattered because of the persecution, because of the death of Philip. Philip was stoned to death while, sorry, thank you. Stephen, yeah, Stephen was stoned to death while Paul held, or was like the cloak clerk, right? He took the, t- he took the cloaks and handed out the tickets. And he approved of that. Then he becomes a believer, heads up even further north in Antioch, because of the persecution which he created. And now he's a part of this church. The church, friends, is full of messy people. Um, sometimes we, come, we, we do a bad job of communicating the gospel to people because we communicate that we have some, um, that we're better than other people before we communicate that we have good news for them. And that's not the case. We're just forgiven. Um, They encouraged each other in the word. They were preaching the word about the Lord Jesus. They stayed true to the word. They were exhorted in truth. Paul and Barnabas stay there and teach them for a year. That must have been pretty cool. Show up early Sunday for teaching from Paul and Barnabas. 
So, there's one Lord. These people have a mission. They're on mission together. They understand that together. It's all circled around the word, around following Jesus, being disciples of Jesus, around broken, diverse people taking the gospel out. It's just a great example. Our DNA follows that. We follow Jesus. We abide in Jesus. We are outreach-oriented. In other words, we're heat and light. That's how we say it. We go together, whatever we're like. We pass the baton to the next generation. We're discipling. That's what was happening in that place. One Lord, on mission, one mission. And finally, they were under one name, right? They're called Christians now. They're no longer a sect. So this is a really big moment uh, historically in the transition of the church because before they were a sect of the Jews. So as a sect of the Jews, they were protected. But now they're in Rome, under the Roman structure. But now they're their own religion, and so they were not going to be welcome in the Roman Empire. You couldn't start a new faith in the Roman Empire. So they were brought out into the spotlight. And soon, suffering is going to come. In fact, Peter, when he writes his letters a little bit later, writes to the people up north. He says, uh, Beloved, this is in 1 Peter 4.12, Don't be surprised at the fiery tri- trial when it comes to you, upon you to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief, evildoer or meddler. Yet, this is cool, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I think a way to say that is if, if we were to pray that, God, may the fact that I call myself Christian without shame bring glory to you. Um, they were identifying as a certain group that followed that were disciples of Jesus. I mean, a Christian, calling yourself a Christian is a pretty significant thing. Uh, I have a friend who doesn't even say the word Christian just because it carries so much baggage. He, he just says, I, I'm a Jesus follower. Um, it, ta- it's, it takes a little bit of the baggage, you know, uh, off of the, the situation. But when pe- this is what I get a lot of times when people find out I'm a believer. Um, it's sort of this, usually it's, it's cordial, but it's often this sort of, uh, it, it comes across in the, in the body language like, oh, I see Right, um, there's this nonverbal, you know, thing that's like, okay. And every now and then, you meet somebody who's like, I'm excited about that. I'm a believer too, or that's cool, that's fine. You know, they do you do you that kind of a thing. But there is a, a gathering trend in the West, in the United States, to be looked down upon if you're a Christian, and we can expect that, I think, to accelerate. But whether it does or not isn't the point. The point is that we have the privilege of suffering for Christ. And here's the funny thing. They told these people, you're going to have a Lord, a king over your life. He's going to be over everything in your life. And they knew that when they made that decision, that they were going to suffer for it. And they still chose to do it. I want to be like that. There's a... uh, there's something I keep noticing in the scripture in the past couple of years. You guys are probably way ahead of me on this. But a lot, in a lot of situations, even going back to the Ten Commandments, 
talks about the name of God. The, not taking the name of the Lord in vain. The name of Christ. Doing things in the name of Christ. We pray in his name. We have authority. We find authority in his name. These believers are taking the name of Christ. The follower of Jesus. There's, so there's two names at play. One is this name Christian uh, that identifies us. And the other is the name Christ, who is above all things. Both of these names come together with the believer. In Acts 4, 11, and 12, this is just a few chapters before. I love this passage. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. We must be saved. One name. One Lord above all. One king that believers choose and were chosen by. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's our cornerstone. And we're built together in him as believers, as the church. We have one Lord. We're on mission. And we're under one name. Um, let me ask our musicians to come on back up. So it's pretty simple. Uh, if, there's, if there's only one thing we get, it's that there is one Lord. That's the message. That's the thing that's repeated five times by Luke as he tells us this story. Jesus is Lord, master of all things, king of all kings, for all of the diverse people, bringing them together, on mission for him. So my question is, as you think about those things, and whichever part of that may be connected with you, um, is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? I don't think there's probably anyone here who's a believer who wouldn't say that Jesus is not the Lord. But is he the master of all your things? King of kings over your life. Is he your Lord? Um, what I want to do is uh, transition us in prayer, and then we're going to move to some worship together. So if you will, uh, bow with me and we'll close. <clears throat> Father, uh, I come to you with my friends, and Lord, we admit that uh, we while in awe of what you have done, uh, in our best moments we see the beauty, we experience the incredible uh, power of relationship uh, with one another in the church, outside of the church. We see how you have created things that um, are so profound and so complex. And they draw us to you. But Lord, then we, we so easily stop short of calling you king. Somehow we want, like the first couple, to be king ourselves, to know what you know, to not trust you and to trust ourselves. Uh, Father, I pray that in the songs that we sing, in the words of prayer, that, that whatever happens in the next few moments in our hearts, God, that what it would do is it would lift your name up, that we would glorify your name, and that, Lord, as we go out of here, that we would not be ashamed 
to be uh, called your followers, uh, regardless of the cost, um, that we would enjoy the privilege of bringing honor to who you are. Um, thank you for my friends that are trying to walk in this, uh, in this world, walk in Crested Butte, share the truth of the gospel in our town with the people that we love. Uh, and doing that together, Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful for the partnership we have in that, in this room. Uh, Lord, we turn our hearts to you now. And it is in his name, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen.